as we continue on in our sermon series entitled Spiritual Warfare. And today we are entering part five in which we will now start examining the armor of God, which every soldier of Christ is commanded to put on. And so we're going to get into that this morning. Would you bow with me and let's pray as we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. It is not truth from the opinion of man, but it comes straight from you, as you inspired men by your spirit to record your words, your will, and your work in this world. We have everything we need. So by your Holy Spirit, would you open it uh, to our hearts, to our minds, that as we look at your words, Lord Jesus, as we look at the words that you inspired the Apostle Paul to record for us, as we look at what it means to live in the truth, to walk in the truth, we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding. And so we ask you to apply this to our hearts. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in your name. Amen. Now as we begin part five, and we're going to begin looking at the armor of God, I'm going to ask you, have you ever heard of a man named Colonel Karl von Kosenwitz? Anyone ever heard of Karl von Kosenwitz? I'm not seeing any, any nods, so how about the name Colonel Lonsdale Hale? Anyone heard of him either? No one? Okay, we got no, no history buffs out there who recognize these names. Well, I hadn't heard of them either until I came across this this past week, because uh, there's a particular phrase that I want to see if you've heard of this phrase. Have you ever heard of the phrase, the fog of war? Anyone heard of that phrase, the fog of war? Okay, so this is an affirmative. Almost everyone has heard that phrase. And while it's these two men that you hadn't heard of, Karl von Kosenwitz, he was the one who was credited with coming up with the idea that comes behind this phrase. And it was Colonel Hale who is the first person that was credited with actually using this phrase, the fog of war, to refer to combat conditions. Now, it's been reported that Colonel Hale first used this phrase back in 1896 in the Boer War. And he used it there to describe what he considered to be the normal conditions on a battlefield. And so what he meant by it and what it's become synonymous with is that the fog of war, it means that it's that state of ignorance in which commanders frequently find themselves regarding the real strength and position and conditions on the battlefield, not only with the enemy, but also with their own forces. In other words, whenever the plans have been made and and the, the troops have been put into position, once the actual fighting begins, once the bullets are flying and the bombs are exploding, it's then that the fog sets in. When you simply lack the necessary information in real time concerning your own troops and the the opposing troops as well. And it can be difficult as this clash of forces is happening to to know who is winning and who is losing and where do reinforcements need to be sent and which troops need to be maneuvered or told to draw back. And so the fog of war is something that has become synonymous with, with these sorts of clear, unclear conditions that commanders have to face. And so it's said that at best you are fighting in a fog. Well, in much the same way, as we now switch over to the spiritual warfare in which we as believers are engaged, 
We are each called as soldiers to be fighting on the side of God against the forces of Satan and darkness. But in much the same way, we are also battling in a fog of war. And the primary difference between spiritual warfare and physical warfare is that here in this, the, the realm of spiritual warfare, the battle lines are drawn between what is true and what is false. It is the truth of God and the lies of the devil. And ever since the Garden of Eden, when that crafty serpent first whispered that question to Eve, has God really said you shall not eat from every tree in the garden? And then when he, when he whispered that first definitive lie, you will not surely die. Well, from that moment forward, the battle for the truth has raged ever since. And Satan has done his very best, just as he did with Eve, to cast doubt upon the truth of God, to get us to question it, and then further to obscure it with partial truths and, and, and just enough deceit to get us to be deceived, just as Eve was, and obscure the truth of God, which was once so clear, with a fog. And so today we will begin our examination of this armor of God, which he has given to us to fight this battle, this spiritual war, and in this battle to not be deceived by the enemy, but ultimately prevail. And so we've already read it this morning, but I'll read it for you once more. Ephesians 6, 13, and 14. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And so now we are going to begin our examination on the very first piece of armor that God has provided us with, and that is the belt of truth. Now, in this next slide, you'll see the soldier is, is wearing a traditional set of armor that a Roman soldier would have worn or something very similar to that. And there it's highlighted around his, his waist, this large belt that he is wearing. Now, for us today, and for me, I'm wearing a belt this morning. But for most of us, a belt has little more function than being a bit of a, a fashion accessory. So the importance of the belt for a soldier could be somewhat lost on us. So the first thing we have to remember when Paul is talking about the belt as part of, of the equipment that an armor of, that a soldier would wear, we have to remember that he's writing this letter to the Ephesians while he was a prisoner of Rome, being directly chained to a Roman soldier at all times. So even as Paul was penning these words, remember that he's very likely looking directly at a soldier next to him wearing a suit of armor. So he's got an up-close view to think over his analogy before he starts writing these words. So he has a very good understanding of all of these pieces. Second, the soldier's belt wasn't a final fashion accessory, but rather it was a vital piece of the armor. It was made of a wide piece of thick leather, which was connected the other pieces together. So all of the other pieces of the armor, the, the breastplate, uh, and, and every other piece would connect to the belt. And there was also where the sheath for the sword would hang off of the belt. And there would often also be a hook where when they were carrying their shields, not in combat, they could also hook their shield onto a clasp. 
So, so this belt was load-bearing in everything connected to it, and in fact, it held the whole suit of armor together. And so, in this way, as, as Paul is saying, put on the belt of truth, he's saying God's truth, it's not an optional piece of our armor that we can have a take-it-or-leave-it approach to or treat as an afterthought. Rather, God's truth is of first importance to the soldier of Christ, as no battle, whether great or small, can be won without it. James Montgomery Boyce rightly observes, It is significant that Paul puts truth first. This suggests that successful spiritual warfare begins with fixing Christianity's great doctrines firmly in our minds. Or to put it another way, It is dangerous to rush into battle without having the great doctrines of the faith fixed firmly in our understanding. In Christianity, truth comes first, then action follows. In Christianity, truth comes first, then action follows. So here we see it wasn't just a flip of the coin or random uh, uh, picking that Paul put truth first. No, it was the foundational piece that everything else had to connect to. So we must know the truth before we can act upon the truth. Notice even that the belt of truth precedes the helmet of salvation. Now we would think that salvation would come first, right? But think about this. Simply, we cannot be saved apart from first having knowledge of the truth, can we? We have to have knowledge of the truth before we can respond to it in faith and believe. As Paul puts elsewhere in Romans 10 verse 14, How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach to them? So here he's making the case once again that you cannot respond to the truth of Jesus and you cannot believe in the gospel until you have first received a knowledge of it. Someone has to tell you. Someone has to declare this truth to you. And so in all of these ways, the truth comes first then our response and subsequent action follows. Thirdly, this belt held another important function that is lost on us today. You see, a Roman soldier, as, as you see in this, in this depiction here, he wore a tunic or an outer garment that would, would have served as his primary clothing. And as you look at this picture, you're going to think of it as his skirt, Right, so to us it looks like a skirt or a dress billowing out below the armor. Now, much of ancient combat was done hand to hand. So having a loose tunic flapping around you while you're fighting in hand to hand combat would have been a hindrance to the soldier and in fact could have been very dangerous if it got caught up on something while he's fighting. And so rather than having this loose tunic flapping about while they were fighting, before a battle, a soldier would gird up his loins. Now, have you ever read in the old King James Version or different versions of the Bible, girding up your loins? Well, this morning, you're going to get a crash course on what that actually means. This here is a little analogy that I found from a a magazine called Manliness, and it actually gives the step-by-step process on how to gird up your loins. So this is, this is what it means. So there you see the guy with the full uh, you know, skirt slash tunic going almost to his ankles. 
There's the step-by-step. He hikes it up. He ties it off. He loops it through. My favorite is step four, where it describes it as it will kind of be tied off like a diaper. That's my favorite step in the whole process. But then you see by, by step six, it's all tied off. It's bunched up. It's not flapping around anymore. The sword is in his hand, and he is charging into battle. And so now when you, when you come across that phrase, especially in the Old Testament where, you know, they say, you know, gird up your loins and fight like a man. That is exactly what they're referring to. Now, if you look at this and you want to snicker, you know, it's a little, you know, funny looking, right? Well, remember that these were the wranglers of the day. So I dare you to make fun of that guy with the sword in his hand at your own peril, right? That we may chuckle at it, but this was manliness at, at its purest form in the Old Testament sense. So in exactly this way, the same technique, a Roman soldier would gird up his loins before battle. He would take his tunic and he would carefully fold it upward, tucking it through the belt around his waist and fastening it securely to a leather strap. So this would mean prepared for action. It means that you will have nothing to hinder you or slow you down. So in the full context of this passage, what girding your loins with the truth means is that once you know and believe the truth of God, you are now fully prepared for action. You are prepared to enter the battlefield and go toe-to-toe, blow-for-blow against the lies of the devil. And this is exactly where the spiritual battle lines are drawn between God and Satan. Light and darkness, truth and lies. And as Jesus will soon make crystal clear in our next passage, everyone is on one side or the other whether they realize it or not. So turn with me now to John chapter 8. There in John chapter 8, our scripture reading for this morning, we will see how our Lord Jesus clearly drew these battle lines between all those who joined him on the side of the truth and all those who remained captured by Satan on the side of darkness and lies. Now in this next slide, we see a depiction of Jesus standing and teaching in the temple courtyard by the the, uh, columnade of Solomon, as was often his place for teaching. We see here a depiction of of many of the Jews gathered around him. And this is the exact setting for this teaching in John chapter 8, where Jesus begins in verse 12 by saying to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Jesus makes this statement that we're all very familiar with, but remember, to their ears, this was a very bold claim to be making about himself. So immediately we read in the next verse that the Pharisees challenged Jesus, arguing that because he was testifying about himself, that according to Jewish law, which required two witnesses, his testimony was invalid, which was really a backhanded way of calling Jesus a liar. They're basically saying, you can't be speaking the truth because you're claiming this about yourself and we're not going to just take your word for it. So Jesus countered them by stating that he was, in fact, sent by his father who bore witness to him and plus his own testimony that he made about himself that made two witnesses which satisfied the Jewish law. So Jesus has a very clever response. Then in verse 19, the Pharisees ask him, Well, where is your father? 
Jesus replied, You do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now don't miss the stinging rebuke in Jesus' words, because who was Jesus' father? Now, almost certainly the Pharisees were thinking about Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. And so they're saying, well, where is he? Where, where is your dad who, who's, who's vouching for you? Is he in the crowd? That's how they're thinking. They're thinking in human terms. We know, of course, that Jesus was not referring to his earthly father, Joseph, who we know had, had died by this point. He, of course, was referring to his true father, his heavenly father, God. And so what Jesus had just told the Pharisees, the most religious people on earth, what he told them was that they, in fact, did not know God. A stinging rebuke. But the irony is, the, the Pharisees at this point, they're still so blind and so uh, uh, spiritually dense, in a sense, that they don't get it, and they don't even understand that Jesus bluntly told them that they didn't know God. Now, if you think that Jesus is starting to kind of poke the bear here and getting them a little bit riled up, he's just getting started. He's just warming up. Verse 24, we jump ahead. And then Jesus proceeds to tell them that unless they believe in him personally, they would die in their sins. But verse 27 tells us they still did not understand. So they're blind and they're dense And Jesus is bringing the truth to them. He's saying, I am the truth. I'm standing right in front of you. Believe in me. And and they're not getting it. It's not penetrating. And so Jesus keeps confronting them with more and more truth, but they still lack the understanding. Then verse 30, John tells us that something interesting is happening while this dialogue is happening and as Jesus is teaching. Verse 30 says, even as Jesus spoke, many put their faith in him. So the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus. Other people are sitting back weighing his words and it's, it's beginning to penetrate. They're beginning to, to agree with Jesus. And John uses this phrase, many put their faith in him. But it becomes immediately clear that John used this as a broad term to signify that some were voicing agreement. For Jesus then immediately puts their newfound faith in him to a test. And we continue in John 8 and verse 31 and 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now what did Jesus mean by, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples? And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What did he mean by this? Because hadn't they just professed faith in him? So wouldn't that mean that they already knew the truth, and hadn't they just been set free by the truth? Well, not so fast. Because as we proceed into verse 33, they immediately revealed that they didn't really get what Jesus had been saying to them. Because there we read, they answered him. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Do you you see how they reveal their ignorance in this statement? We have never been slaves of anyone. How then shall we be set free? First thing about that statement is it's utterly absurd because had they forgotten their history as Abraham's descendants? 
never been slaves of anyone? Had they forgotten about the 400 years of slavery in Egypt? The later slavery in Babylon and even the current occupation under the Romans? Never been slaves of anyone, really. Second, it revealed that they blindly didn't see themselves as having any sin that they needed to be set free from. Jesus had already been talking about sin. So they should have been able to piece together that that is what he was setting them free from. But here they say, what do we need to be set free from? They didn't get it, that they had sin that he had come to deliver them from. And then thirdly, it revealed that they simply didn't understand who Jesus really was or who he was claiming to be. And so we wonder, as we look at this exchange, and I often wonder, how could this be? How could they be looking at Jesus, you know, as we see in this picture, looking him right in the face, hearing his words, and not get it? Wasn't Emmanuel, God in the flesh, the truth incarnate, the Logos, Israel's long-awaited deliverer sent from heaven, standing right in front of them, declaring God's truth to their very ears? How could they then still not see and hear and understand? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul gives us this very definitive answer. He writes, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age is referring to Satan. And he says that he has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see. They cannot understand. They are blind. And so you see in this spiritual battle that is being waged between Jesus and Satan, on that very day, what those religious Jews could not recognize was that they had been so deceived by Satan that they were actually standing, not on God's side, but on the devil's side. And because Satan is a master of deception and confusion and using that fog of war, he made certain that those Pharisees and religious Jews stayed on his side by dressing up his lies with just enough truth to make it sound good in their own ears. There's a true story from the year 1212 AD of a French shepherd boy by the name of Stephen who claimed that Jesus had appeared to him disguised as a pilgrim and had instructed him to lead a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Well, this poor misguided boy went and told everyone about what he, had, what he had seen in this vision and what he believed that the Lord had told him to do. And before long, he had gathered a large following to himself of more than 30,000 children who joined him on this pilgrimage to the Holy Land. When asked where they were going, they would reply, We go to God. And seek for the Holy Cross beyond the sea. And so they began to march through southern France towards the Mediterranean Sea. But when they reached the city of Marseille, there the waters of the Mediterranean did not part before them and let them cross on dry land as Stephen had told them that they would. And so now here the children were up against the sea and they're stuck and they don't know what they're going to do. But then Stephen was approached by two men named Hugo Ferreris and William Porcus. And these two men claimed to be so impressed with the calling of these children that they offered to transport them across the Mediterranean in seven ships without any charge. 
Well, believing this to be God's provision, Stephen and the children joyfully boarded the ships and the journey began. But instead of setting sail for the Holy Land, they set course for North Africa. For you see, what the children didn't know was that the two men were actually cunning slave traders who saw the children as an easy mark for personal profit. And so these children had been deceived, and they didn't realize it. And even as they crossed the waters right up until arriving at the coast of North Africa, they still believed they were on their way to the Holy Land. But by the time they realized the truth, it was much too late. All 30,000 were sold as slaves in the Muslim slave markets of North Africa. None ever reached the Holy Land, and most died still in slavery. In the same way, those religious Jews, they were aboard Satan's slave ship headed for destruction. And they didn't realize it. Like those children, they believed that they were sailing straight for the Holy Land. They were headed for heaven. They were so certain of it. They were on the right ship. But just like those children, they had been deceived by a cunning deceiver, and they couldn't see it. And so here Jesus is confronting the lies that they've been, that they've been deceived into believing. And these words that he's about to share with them, they can sound very, they are very harsh. And they can sound unloving. But remember, Jesus' desire was to save them. And the only way that he could save them was to show them the truth in a way that they could get it. And so this is where we got to remember Jesus was motivated by a deep love as he proceeds to confront them with some very blunt and unvarnished truths about how dark their hearts truly were and the sin that they truly needed to admit, confess, and repent of in order to be forgiven, set free, and become a real child of God and disciple of Christ. Now, when I say blunt, I mean buckle up, because Jesus is about to bring the heat and unleash some of the most scathing indictments of their true spiritual condition that you will read anywhere in Scripture. It's so sharp and clear that it will force these Jews before him to make one of only two possible choices. Choice number one is to either humbly agree with Jesus and throw themselves on the ground before him in repentance and beg for God's mercy, just as the Ninevites had done when Jonah preached to them all those centuries earlier. That was choice number one. Or choice number two was to reject his teaching and kill him. That was how stark the choice was that Jesus is going to force them to make. And so now Jesus brings these holy indictments of God against them. Indictment number one, they are slaves to sin. Verse 34, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Remember this emphasis on the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now remember, they didn't see themselves as being sinners, so they didn't see themselves as being slaves. There was nothing to be freed from. But Jesus says, I tell you the truth, everyone, that means you, Pharisee, that means you, religious Jew, that means all of you listening here today, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Meaning, if you want to be saved, you have to be freed from it. That was indictment number one. Indictment number two. They harbored murderous thoughts towards Jesus in their hearts. And he repeats this multiple times. Verse 37. 
Jesus says, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. Then again in verse 40, as it is, you are determined to kill me. So here he's saying, you look all pretty and religious on the outside, but inside you are murderers. In fact, you're thinking about killing me right now. That's strong, right? Strong. Indictment number three. The biggest of all. He says that they are not children of God or of Abraham, for that matter. But in fact, you are children of the devil. Verse 42 to 45, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Now, when I said he's bringing the heat, he's bringing the heat. If you could imagine the hackles standing up on the backs of their necks right there, that would be a start. The, the steam coming off their heads. They are furious. They are indignant. They are, they are every word that you could describe. They are on, on the edge of, of just rage and charging Jesus and tearing him limb from limb for him to accuse them of actually being sons of the devil. And yet, as Jesus clearly pointed out, the attitudes and actions of these religious Jews clearly identified them as children of the devil. For they had been spreading his lies and voluntarily doing his dark will. Though they were not aware that that is what they were doing, in their rejection of the truth, in their false beliefs that their own works could merit their salvation, even further in the murderous intent in their hearts, it all indicated just how much control Satan actually had over them. How, how truly deceived they were by his lies. That they had become his tools in carrying out his plans. And yet when he would be finished with them, he would turn and destroy them as well. So the question in all of this is, how can you know when Satan is lying? Well, Jesus just told us. It's when his lips are moving. He is speaking his native language, right? If Satan's lips are moving, just know it's a lie, no matter how good it sounds, no matter how persuasive. He speaks lies as naturally as Jesus speaks the truth. And as the father of lies, he is the very best that there is at lying or ever will be. Now, think about it this way. Picture a fisherman in your mind. I want you to picture with me a skilled fisherman. And this skilled fisherman, as we see in this picture, he's heading out to his favorite secret fishing hole. And he knows that out there in this fishing hole is, is one of those giant bass that likes to hide amongst the weeds and sunken logs along the river's edge. And his, his, his aim is to catch this trophy bass, to hook it, to reel it in, and to mount it as a trophy on his wall. But in order to do that, this fisherman knows that well, he's not just going to throw a bare hook into the water and expect to catch this, this fish. No, that wouldn't fool the fish. Instead, this skilled fisherman, he's going to disguise the hook with an attractive lure. 
He may even hide it with a a tasty nightcrawler or some other type of live bait. For he wants that fish, this trophy, to swallow the bait without noticing the hook. And when he does, and he sets that hook deep, it'll be too late. And in a similar way, Satan is also fishing for people. And the bait is whatever will lure us to take the hook of sin, which he's dressed up with a clever and appetizing lie. It usually appeals to a natural desire such as our, our need for intimacy or success or security. He uses legitimate needs to hide his real intent which is to get us ultimately to to disobey God and to believe the lie. So don't be fooled by his tactics. Satan is out to lure you in just as he did those religious Jews. As the old saying goes, hook, line, and sinker. For despite Jesus' blunt indictment of their spiritually lost condition, he gave it to them with both barrels. We read their response. They stubbornly refused to listen to the truth. They continued to harden their hearts. They continued to reject Jesus' word, even as he stood right in front of them. And their response in the next verse is incredibly, and as outlandish as this sounds, in their anger at Jesus accusing them of being sons of the devil, they respond by accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed, and a Samaritan to boot, because that's the worst slander they could think of, you know, demon-possessed and a Samaritan. And Jesus replies by finally, clearly, emphatically stating his divinity in verse 58. And he says to them once more, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. By invoking the title, I am, the same name that God had revealed to Moses from the burning bush, there there was no more fog. It was crystal clear. Jesus was claiming the status of God, making himself equal with the Father. This was not lost to the religious Jews of that day, and they became so enraged that we read to the end of the chapter that they picked up stones to stone Jesus to death. They wanted to kill him right then and there. But John tells us that Jesus hid himself and slipped away from the temple grounds. But here we see that Jesus' blunt truth, it forced them to reveal the murder that had been lurking in their hearts all along. And it revealed that through their actions, their allegiance to their true father, Satan, was was real. And it was revealed right there in plain terms for all to see. They had taken Satan's bait of lies. They had bit hard on his hook. And now they didn't want to let go no matter how much truth Jesus force-fed them that day. So my friends, don't take the bait the way that they did. Instead, put on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Remember, throughout this entire exchange, Jesus was emphasizing the truth. I speak the truth. I tell you the truth. The truth will set you free. Again and again, he's talking about the truth And later on in John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it's up to us to put on the belt of truth. How do we do that? First, we must recognize that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus claimed divinity on that day, and they wanted to kill him for it. 
And so we must recognize that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. And further, that he is that one and only way, the truth and the life. There is no other way to God the Father. There is no other way to salvation but through him. That is number one. Number two, we must believe that every word that Jesus speaks, no matter how blunt, is the truth. Every word that comes from his mouth is true. That's number two. Number three, we must humbly accept what Jesus says about our lost spiritual condition of being slaves to sin and that we cannot free ourselves. We have to accept that. Four, we have to then repent of that sin, recognizing our lost condition as slaves to sin. We have to repent of it. We have to believe the truth. And then, and only then, be truly set free. For as Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And then number five, once we have been set free, and we are free indeed, and we are truly followers of Christ, we then immerse ourselves in the truths of God every day. For it is as we saturate our minds with the truths of God's word, we saturate them, we read them, we meditate on them, It is then that our ability to discern the lies of the enemy will grow and increase. For in this dark world of deception, in the fog of war, the best protection against Satan's lies is to know God's truth. The old saying is, how do you spot a counterfeit? You need to know the real thing. You can can try to memorize all the counterfeits in the world, but you can never memorize them all. But one that you can memorize is the real thing. That's how you can learn to spot a counterfeit. So to all of my fellow soldiers of Christ, let me ask you these questions. Have you securely fastened on the belt of truth? Have you taken those first four steps of acknowledging who Jesus is, accepting his claims of who he is and the words from his mouth? And have you repented of your sins? Have you done all of those things? Have you fastened on the belt of truth. And then have you come to step number five. Do you read and study your Bible? Are you growing in your understanding of the truths contained within it? Are you hungering and seeking for more of the truth? Are you discussing it in fellowship with other Christians? Are you learning to apply it to your personal life? Are you growing in the ability to discern truth from error? And are you speaking the truth in love to others. None of us does these things perfectly, but these are the aims and the desires that we are to have as followers of Christ, as those who walk in the truth. And so that is my hope and prayer for myself as it is for each one of you today. Dr. Dehan wrote this short poem, which I'll share with you in closing. It goes like this. The devil is crafty, subtle, deceptive, and sly. He's clever and tricks us to swallow his lie. But his cunning methods we only discern by making God's word our daily concern. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we have been looking closely at this very powerful and challenging example from your life and from your teaching, as you boldly confronted the Pharisees and the the lies that they had believed, and the sin and the murderous intent that lurked in their hearts that day. 
We, we admire your courage, your boldness. We are in awe of you at the way that you could do such things and speak such words with such force and with such authority because you are who you claim to be. You are God in the flesh. You are the I am. You are the truth incarnate. And Lord, it mystifies us, it puzzles us that those religious Jews could be there that day looking you in the face and hearing the very words of God in their own ears and still not believe and still choose even further to reject it to the point of where they raised up hands in violence seeking to stone you to death. But Lord, we recognize that when those who have been deceived and, and snared by the lies of the enemy, that Lord, there is a choice each one of us must make to admit that we have been deceived, enslaved by sin, and that we cannot free ourselves. It must be you. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone listening today who perhaps realizes for the first time that they have not done so. Lord, that they could humbly confess their position before you, that they too are hooked, enslaved to sin, and that they cannot set themselves free. Only you can. Only you and your truth can truly set them free. And it's only by humbly admitting that, yes, I am a sinner in a lost condition apart from the Savior, and it's only by placing faith in you that one can be saved. And so I pray, Lord, that if anyone is listening today who recognizes this, that by your Spirit would you grant them the grace to respond to your truth, not with hostility, not with rejection, not with excuses, but with humble faith, and to take you at your word, and to believe, and to be set free, and to enter into that life which is truly life. And Lord, for all of us today who recognize all of these things already, and we are firm on the truth we have put on that belt long ago, I pray that today that hearing these truths once more would fortify our hearts by your truth, and that today we would be motivated to leave even more diligent in immersing ourselves in your truth daily, so that your truth is in our minds and our hearts and on our lips at every moment of every day, so that in this fog of war, as the enemy continues to throw lie after lie and deception after deception our way, that we could be discerning and wise, and that we could navigate through this by your truth, for your word is truth. It is a light to our path. And so we pray, Lord, that you would guide us by your truth through these days. May we hold to it all the more tightly, for it is the path to life. We thank you for having given it to us today. And once more, we choose to be the soldiers who will buckle on this belt of truth today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.